This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Welcome to a very special 30th episode of The Way I See It. Special because this is the finale of this series about modern art with me, Alastair Souk. Throughout, we've invited some of the sharpest, most brilliant minds from across the arts and beyond to talk to us about the works of art that most appeal to them from the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to experience pieces by some 29 artists so far, always seeing them afresh by looking at them through the eyes of our guests. And I hope I've been able to share that experience too. Now hear this. <laughs> now see this. Now feel this. It gasses you up. I need to be gassed up sometimes. And art really helps me in everything. That's who we are. And that, even though it's painful, is incredibly pleasurable to know that somebody understands that. For me, it was as a child, it said, come in. Something leaps out and just says, I know you or you know me. Powerful things will come from your interaction with these works. That is art. It's just a response to being alive, but it's a loud, intense response. Fiona Shaw. And before her, Steve Reich, Ruthie Rogers, Stanley Tucci, Brian Stevenson, Margaret Cho and Madeleine Tien all telling us why they see their chosen artwork the way they do. Well, I can't promise you that today's mind is the sharpest of all. I'll leave that up to you to decide because, um, well, today's guest is me. And I remember coming to MoMA for the first time when I was, I think, in my late teens. And in those days when I had burgeoning interest in art this place it had an aura and I was walking through the galleries and seeing all of these stunning works of art that I'd seen many times in reproduction and here they were for real much larger in reality with much brighter colours and Matisse was the artist above all who I think made my blood fizz with excitement in those early days. And there were two paintings that I adored. One was this enormous painting that's on the other side of the gallery from where I am now, and it's called Dance Version 1, and it dates from 1909. Very simple, very flattened forms. There's just a large blue sky, an expanse of green, which is the ground beneath, and then one, two, three, four, five pink naked figures who are dancing seemingly in space. But the other painting, how many choices am I going to have for this episode? The other one I'm sitting in front of now, and it was painted a couple of years afterwards, and it's called The Red Studio. I think this is maybe my favourite painting in the world. It shows the inside of Matisse's studio. In fact, Matisse, who'd had a very difficult time as an artist, had suddenly come into some money. And with that money, he'd moved into a suburb of Paris and he built himself a studio. And in this painting, we see inside it, and we see a grandfather clock, stools, chairs, a table, items of furniture. There's a glass on the table, a small plant coming from a bottle. There are sculptures by Matisse and, crucially, lots and lots of his own paintings. It's like Matisse is painting his own mini-retrospective of works that are important to him, which he wants to share with the viewer. But listen, 
I'm going on about the works of art, and the thing I'm missing is the most obvious aspect of this, which is the clue given by the title. It's called The Red Studio. And the reason is, because when you first see this work of art, the space is nothing but this expanse of red, a rich colour, a radiant colour, which fills and floods the entire space, the walls, the floor, the table, the chair. And in fact, the only thing that's properly painted, if you like, that isn't red, are the works of art by Matisse himself. And the point of this is that he's not representing something in a naturalistic way. He wasn't trying to record the precise appearance of the studio. Instead, he's painting something which is about subjectivity and emotion, about how he feels, the things that are most important to him. And down on the foreground on that table, there's just a small box of crayons, maybe a surrogate for the artist himself. And to the left, there's a painted piece of crockery, white, shallow dish with a floral motif around it. And then inside, the blue figure crouched in a fetal position. I know that when he was growing up, his mum used to decorate and paint pieces of crockery as a hobby. And I can't help look at that and see a homage to his mother because the figure inside is curled up in this fetal way. And suddenly, in fact, the entire zone feels like this red amniotic fluid. It's a place of safety and refuge, a place of wonder and magic. It's such an exciting painting. It's been hanging at MoMA since, I think, 1949. And it influenced a generation, people like Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, so-called colour field painters who created grand effects from large passages of colour. The thing is, for all its important influence upon that groundbreaking generation of American artists, I can't look at the Red Studio as a British art critic without a pang of regret, because viewed from my side of the Atlantic, this is the great modern picture that got away. For years, it hung in the bar of a bohemian London nightclub called The Gargoyle in Soho, until in 1941, it was offered to the Tate Gallery for just £400, and they turned it down, which paved the way for it eventually to end up at MoMA. Of course, I'm being slightly tongue-in-cheek, the truth is that ultimately it doesn't matter whether it's on the walls at MoMA or Tate Modern or any other museum. The point is that now it can be seen by the rest of the world. Really, I've wanted to talk about the Red Studio not as my official choice, but as the preamble, if you like, to the work that I am picking for this episode. Because the Red Studio is a sort of imaginary, private, personal museum containing a single man's solo exhibition for Matisse. And the work I'm about to go and see, I think, does something remarkably similar in a way that's much more relevant specifically to the museum of modern art as a place. At some point, scale alters your ability to invent and reinvent yourself, to be what I fundamentally believe this institution should be, which is an ongoing series of propositions about how to understand modern and contemporary art. MoMA's director, Glenn D. Lowry, Recently, Glenn's been encouraging his curators to expand the canon of modern art by looking beyond Western art history. He wants MoMA's walls to be hung with masterpieces from all over the world, appearing alongside those trusty crowd-pleasers like Matisse's Red Studio. 
there's a difficult balance to strike between the familiar, the iconic, the well-known, mostly European and North American works of art in our collection, and the unfamiliar. There's a commitment to rotating the collection with the same frequency that we rotate temporary exhibitions. So what you see today will be gone in three to six months, and a whole new series of works of art will appear. And we'll do this by zones in the building, so that over a one-and-a-half to three-year period, almost 100% of what's on view will have changed. Of course, Starry Night is still going to be there, and Matisse's Dance is still going to be there, and Monet's Water Lilies will still be there, but their neighbors will have changed. And I hope that our public will be as excited about what's new at the museum as they are about seeing those iconic works that they might have initially come to find. Well, I've got a fantastic view of my selection for this episode, and it's a massive, monumental, monochrome tapestry which measures 11 metres by 15 metres and completely covers the wall of one of the buildings here at MoMA next to a staircase. What you see is a photograph that's been turned into this big tapestry, black and white, seen from above of a large open interior space, which happens to be an artist's studio. And towards the top of the composition, you can see the artist herself next to a grand piano that's been turned upside down so that the legs are sticking in the air. And the artist is a Polish-born figure called Goszka Matsuga, who since the late 80s has been based in the UK. And this is an image of her London studio. And at her feet, spread all over the floor, are hundreds of images, which are in pairs. And slowly you realise that what you're looking at are lots of spreads from a book. And the book is illustrated with works of art from the Museum of Modern Art's collection. But what you need to know is that Goshka Matsuga decided to riff on a very famous black and white photograph taken in 1954. And in that photograph, you saw not a woman, but a man in an interior space called André Malraux. And at his feet, all around him, were the proofs of his new book. And the French title of Malraux's book about world sculpture contained this influential phrase that's been translated in various ways. The imaginary museum. The museum without walls. You get the picture. It's a beautiful, enchanting conceit. Each of us carries within our imagination our own bespoke, personalised, private museum for one, filled with the masterpieces that most resonate with us. The thing is... Malraux's Museum Without Walls reflects a very specific worldview, that of a white, male, bourgeois, novelist, writer on art and politician who, in that famous photograph, happens to be smoking and wearing a suit. Nothing wrong with any of that, except the values that Malraux embodied, which have dominated Western culture for so long, aren't the only ones that matter. That's what I've discovered above all else while making this series – There's no single way of looking at art, but a veritable plethora of perspectives. So, Goshka is taking Malraux's idea, 
and updating it for the 21st century, which is why the images on the floor of her studio, which reproduce more than 200 works from MoMA's collection, amount to a new, broader, more inclusive and dynamic vision of modern and contemporary art. If my 18-year-old self were to wander into MoMA today, much of the story told on the museum's walls would still feel familiar. The Red Studio isn't about to be relegated into the stores, but there would also be new continents of creativity and form to discover, hailing, appropriately enough, from continents that historically weren't properly represented. This, the new globalisation of art, if you will, is the great shift in art history of our lifetimes. I know I've cheated, I've selected two works really for this, but the reason I feel they work is because there's a line you can draw from Matisse's Red Studio to Goshka Matsuda's Tapestry Exhibition M. The M obviously refers to her own surname, it refers to MoMA, it refers to André Malraux, the man who appeared in the original photograph. And that link between the Red Studio and Exhibition M is that both of them are works of art which are about displaying other works of art, creating a kind of abstract conceptual exhibition space or zone, an imaginary museum. In Matisse's case, a museum of his own work inside his studio. And in Matsuga's case, her own imaginary museum of highlights, if you like, from the collection at MoMA. But think about the difference between those two propositions. Because one is about a single figure, a colossus of modern art about Henri Matisse picking his own work and presenting it for the viewer's delight and delectation. But the other is something which is much less egotistical, much more open and inclusive and egalitarian as an idea, which is saying, this is my take, this is the way I see the history of modern art, but the way that you see it will be just as compelling. You've been listening to The Way I See It with me, Alistair Souk. You can hear more episodes from this series by searching for The Way I See It on BBC Sounds.